0: Our scriptural reading this morning is from 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. This can be found on the pew Bible in front of you, or in the pew Bible in front of you on page 1018. Give ear to God's word. Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to making your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intended always to remind you of these qualities, though you know... Them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. May the Lord richly bless the hearing and preaching of His word.
1: Thank you, Wes. Good morning. Well, let me pray for us, and then we'll take a closer look at this great passage from 2 Peter. Let's pray. Father, we pray now and ask that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask that your son Jesus uh, would be made known this morning, and that we would hear from him, that we would be changed by him, That we would love him and and worship him and and taste in a greater way the love that he has for us as his people. And we pray this through him. Amen. Um, I know many of you were and probably still are faithful watchers of the office, I guess until it ended. Um, We were faithful watchers during the Michael Scott era and then we stopped at that point because that was the real office with Michael Scott. So I'm going to uh, go back to one of those episodes. Uh, You'll remember the early days of Andy Bernard's character. Um, And if you don't know Andy Bernard or you don't watch The Office, uh, he is a high-strung kiss-up who constantly talks about his alma mater, Anyone know it? Cornell, of course, yes. He talks about Cornell all the time. Um, But he also has this serious temper. And so early on in one of the episodes that he's in, he makes this appearance, Jim, one of his co-workers, steals Andy's cell phone off of his desk while uh, Andy's not in the room and then puts it up in the ceiling through the ceiling tiles. So it's just above Andy's head. Everybody else in the office sees this except for Andy. So Andy comes back into the room and Jim begins calling that cell phone periodically throughout the day. And so Andy's looking around, like knowing that it's his cell phone ringing, but he can't find it anywhere. And so he gets angrier and angrier. This joke is going just as Jim hopes it would. And then eventually, Andy loses it. And he gets so mad, he stands up and he yells at everybody in the office. And then he turns and he punches a hole in the wall. And if you were to do that in your office, something similar like this might happen. They, Dunder Mifflin, sent him to a six-week anger management program. And so he's gone from the show until the beginning of season four. So they get him out for a while. But here's the point, and there is one. When he comes back, he is totally changed. He's a transformed person. His temper is not at all what it used to be. And his whole character kind of has this edge taken off. So he's this mild-mannered guy now. And, and, and all because of this, this anger management program. That he had experienced this sort of turnaround in just these six weeks. Now, that's fine for the show, although I liked the old obnoxious Andy a lot more. And wish they could have stuck with that for a little while longer. But the deal is, is that, that you and I both know that that is not how real change happens. Now, there's part of us, obviously, that would love if change were that easy. That you could just go to a six-week class for whatever it is that really, uh, that really ails you. And then you could experience that kind of transformation. But we know that is not how real change happens. Real change is unbelievably difficult. And I think this is especially true when you kind of move past those initial surface-level sort of behaviors. And you start pressing into to some of these deep-rooted habits and patterns uh, thing, things like deep-rooted anger that is constantly seething below the surface or, or almost a, a compulsion towards lust. Or maybe it's, it, it's an addiction to what people think about you and you want so badly to shake that, but you can't. Or, or maybe that, that you have an envy of other people such that you find it hard to be happy for anybody in your life. And you don't want to be that way anymore, but, but you don't know what to do about it. And I would guess that whether you are a Christian here or not this morning, every single person in here has something like that. There's something that you wish were different about yourself, some tendencies, some ways of relating to people, some particular temptations, and you're sick of having to deal with it. And I would guess that, that some of us are here that are unbelievably discouraged by that this morning, too. Where you feel beaten down, you feel like you've tried everything. And maybe this is especially the case if you've been a Christian for a long time. And you might have seen real change take place in your life after you initially came to Christ. But now at this point you keep bumping up against some of these same things over and over again. And you're ready to throw in the towel. Because you don't see anything substantial happening. And you're about ready to say, this is just who I am. I am an angry person. I am a lustful person, and that's not going to change until Jesus comes back. If that's you this morning, then this passage and this book, as we walk through the book of Second Peter over the next five weeks, has something hugely important to say to you. Peter's writing here to a church that is being tempted to think that it ultimately doesn't matter how you live anymore. They've come to Jesus. They claim to be Christians in this book And then you hear that there's this false teaching that's going around that tells them to live however they want. Peter calls it sensuality all over the place. And so what Peter says in response is that, no, that's wrong. It actually does matter in a huge way how you live. But, and this is where it's huge for us to to understand his point, the power to live in the way that God has called us to live is found in Jesus alone, by grace alone. So, here's what I want us to see this morning it's that Jesus has given us everything we need to know Him and to become like Him. That Jesus Himself is the only lasting source of change, and everything that we need to change comes through our relationships through Him. So, I want to ask this very simple question this morning how do we change? I want you to think specifically of those issues that that come to mind that you continually bump up against and that you continually fight. I'm going to give three answers to that question, how do we change? First, we change by knowing what God has given to us in Jesus. Secondly, by pursuing what God has given to us in Jesus. And then finally, by remembering what God has given to us in Jesus. So knowing, pursuing, and remembering. So first, we change by knowing What God has given to us in Jesus. And you see this in these first few verses. These first four verses. But I want to stop for a second and ask you this. If you were about to tell somebody how to go about changing part of their life. What kind of advice might you give? We'd probably give some sort of how to. Right? We'd give some sort of steps and some instructions to follow. Sort of a how to manual to attain spiritual maturity and holiness in your life. But if you notice, that is not where Peter starts. It's not where he begins. He actually begins by telling us who we are and what we have in Jesus. And this actually is probably the most important thing that we'll say this morning. Um, I want you to listen to the rest of what we have to say. But if you don't get anything else, get this. Change in the Christian life begins not with what you do, but with who and whose you are. Let me say that again. Change in the Christian life begins not with what you do, but with understanding who and whose you are. Change begins by grace. It begins by understanding what God has already done for you in Jesus. And it has to begin there. All of what God has done for us comes to us through Jesus. And so what Peter's saying is that we need to know what God has given to us in Jesus. So what what does he say? What does he say that God has given to us? If you look back to verse 3, he starts with this little, small, minor thing, right? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What Peter's saying is that everything that we need to fight sin in our lives. Is actually given to us by Jesus. Every single thing. That you need for change. Is found in him. And, and what's important to recognize about this. Is that this means that what Jesus has done for us. In the gospel. Is way bigger than just forgiving us for our sins. And that's probably. Initially if you think. Why did Jesus die on the cross? What is it that he's done for us? We well, say he died for our sins right? Right. And we think narrowly that all that he's done for us is forgive us for our sins. And so then trouble comes into play when we start thinking that Jesus says something like, well, I've died in order that you'd be forgiven, but now you're on your own for this whole transformation thing. Get to work. Now you do your part. I've done mine. You do yours. And what Peter says in this passage is that that is not what Jesus says to us. He hasn't left you all alone in the midst of this attempt to change and experience transformation. And this is how I I want to apply this really simply to us. It's that Jesus is actually for you in the midst of your transformation and your struggles. And that might be something new for you to think about. Because some of us picture God, Jesus in particular, kind of standing back, arms crossed, Kind of waiting for you to screw up in this struggle that you continue to fight. That's not the picture of Jesus. The picture that we get of Jesus here is one who has given you everything that you need for transformation in your life. And he's committed to doing it. He's committed to being a part of that transformation. And this shows in verses 3 and 4 here in how we have access to all that he's given to us. Look back at verse 3. It says, through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises. What he says is that it's in this intimate relationship of knowing Jesus, that's what he means when he says knowledge, it's this intimate personal relationship with Jesus that he has given to us promises that can only be described as precious and very great Now, what are these promises? He doesn't say specifically here, but if you look elsewhere in Peter's other letter and then in his sermons in Acts, you see that most of the time when Peter's talking about promises, he's talking about the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises that find their yes in Jesus. And the other promise that he's talking a lot about is that of the promised Holy Spirit, So there's this hope and expectation of Israel that the rescuer is going to come to deliver them from sin. And so Jesus has come to do that. But the way that we receive all that he has done for us comes through the Holy Spirit. And so what that means is that with the Holy Spirit, God is not dealing just with the guilt of your sin. He's actually also dealing with the power of sin in your life. And he is setting you free from that. And look in verse 4 how he describes this. This is what these promises do. He says, and this is incredible, he says, We become partakers of the divine nature. Okay, what does that mean? Right, That can be prone to misunderstanding for sure. So here's what Peter's not saying. He's not saying that by these promises we become divine. He's not saying we become many gods in some way. What he's saying is that that through this relationship with Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we actually are brought into the very life of the Trinity. So that in this sphere, in this relationship with the Trinity, we experience this love and this intimacy that is shared among the the persons of the Godhead. And, And so it's as we begin to participate in that and partake of that and share in that, that we actually begin taking on the character of God. And uh, uh, think about this we, we, we take on this family likeness. Um, this has happened with all of our kids. Um, but right now, we, we just noticed recently that our youngest Samuel starts a lot of sentences with, well, da 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 da, well, da da da, and he does this with his hands a lot. Well, dad, da 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 da. And so Jeanette and I are kind of going, where did he get that from? Where did he pick that up? And I go, well, you know what I think it is, is that, (laughs) and this, of course, has been the case with all of our kids, for better or for worse, they will take on my likeness in some ways, right? This happens in every parent-child relationship, but this happens as well, and it's always for the better in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. As you're entered into this love and life of God, we actually take on the character of God in His outward-facing love towards those around Him. And that's why Peter can say that we then escape from the corruption that is in the world. Because this is the life that we now have as we are made partakers of this divine nature. And so the bottom line is this. Peter is saying, in Jesus we have been given everything that we need In order to change. And that is what he wants us to know. As we pursue this process of change. And so here's how I want to apply this more generally. This is a simple statement. And it might not seem like a huge deal to you. But for some of you this could be a huge huge thing. Real change is possible. Now it's not immediate. It's not overnight. It doesn't mean it's not difficult. It doesn't always come in the form that we want it to. Why is that so important? Because some of you hear that. You hear me say real change is possible. And you go, yeah, right. Like You don't know what I'm actually dealing with. Because if you did, you wouldn't throw out some sort of trite language like that. When you've been struggling for so long with a deep sense of shame or insecurity, where your anger feels like it's overpowering, where you feel enslaved to pornography where you wish that you didn't care so much about what other people thought about you, but you can't think about it being otherwise. Or where your marriage feels like it's locked into such a pattern of unhealthy conflict and bitterness that it is literally difficult for you to imagine what a healthy marriage even looks like, let alone that it could actually be that. Or maybe it's in your parenting where you're thinking about one of your children and you are at your wits end. You have no idea what to do and you are scared to death about it. And so what sets in at that point is a real cynicism towards a statement like real change is possible. Where it becomes a whole lot easier to not expect to see any change at all. Rather than to hope for change and then be disappointed when it doesn't come. If that's you this morning, then I want to remind you of who is writing this letter. This is Peter we're talking about here. And if you remember who Peter is, you know that he's not some sort of glasses, half full, eternal, naive optimist who's this well-wisher who likes to throw these things out. This is Peter who on the night that Jesus was crucified denied him three times. This is the Peter who, along with all the other disciples, thought after Jesus was crucified, this is over. He had given up hope. But this is also the Peter who has experienced the kind of transformation by meeting the risen Lord such that he can write a letter like this. One who has come face to face with Jesus and is transformed because of it. This Peter is speaking from experience. And so his ultimate response to us and our cynicism and and, and the feelings of thinking, this does not apply to me, is the resurrection of Jesus. It's what we celebrated last week. Jesus has risen from the grave, and because that is true, real change is possible. And what Peter wants us to do is to know what God has given to us in Jesus. And so that's what he calls us to in these first four verses. But he doesn't stop just by saying no these things. He then in, these next, in this next section, verses 5 through 11, gives us a call to action. And so secondly, he says we change by pursuing what God has given to us in Jesus. Look back at verse 5. He says, For this very reason, make every effort... To supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and so on. We're not going to go through that entire list. But then look down to verse 10. He uses a different form of the same word for make every effort. Where he says, therefore brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So this is a call to action. There is a call to pursue these virtues. That's what Peter wants us to do. But there are also some parts of this, of this section That really raise questions for us and probably make us even feel a little bit uncomfortable. Especially in verses 10 and 11. So he says, be all the more diligent, but to do what? To confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. And then 11, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So what is Peter saying? I mean, on one reading here, it, it, we might tend to think that, that he's talking something about earning God's favor. Or, or that, that maybe in a charitable way, like we, we, we get into this relationship with Jesus by grace. But then if you want to enter into this eternal kingdom, you better perform. You better get it right because that's what's going to happen. And, and this is an important question to ask, not, not just because it arises here in this text but because I think this is actually at the core of a lot of our own personal struggles with change. And here's what I mean. There's some of us who tend to think that anytime you start talking about putting forth effort towards change, that we automatically think we will fall into the trap of legalism. What is legalism? Legalism is just this view that says, my relationship with God is based on what I do. And I know for a lot of people in here, you have come out of backgrounds where that, that, that was so much a part of what you were taught that it scares you to death when you hear something like, make every effort. Because you think, I know how this ends. I'm going to fall back into thinking that what I do is actually going to determine my standing with God. So what I want to show you, even in this section is that that is not what Peter is saying. What Peter wants us to see is that true change requires effort, yes, but that it comes through grace. Three different things I want you to see. First verse five. He says, for this very reason. Why does that matter? It matters because it's connecting this command that he's about to give with everything he's just said in the first four verses. So he's saying, because I've shown you this grace. Because I've given you everything that you need for life and godliness by grace as a gift, now pursue this change with all these resources that I've given to you. And so so it comes by both trying, putting forth effort, but also by trusting constantly through the whole process. So that's one thing. Then look also at this list of virtues. Look where it begins. It begins with faith. This is one of these virtues in this list that's not from the surrounding world at the time. This is something distinct to Christianity. The point is that it's on this foundation of our acceptance before God that is based on faith alone, not by works, that then we can actually begin pursuing these things. So it's by faith. And thirdly, lastly, I want to spend a little more time on this one. One more spot, verses 8 and 9. Peter says this, he says, if you lack these virtues, then you're going to be ineffective and unfruitful. That makes sense to us, we understand, yeah, if you're not doing these things, you'll be unfruitful. But, what would be the solution to something like that? Like, what we we would probably think the solution would be is, you need to try harder, right? Look what he says, verse 9, he says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you hear what he's saying there? This is incredible. He's saying the problem is not that you're not trying hard enough. The problem is that your lack of fruit in your life betrays the fact that you have lost sight of the grace that you have been shown in Jesus. You become blind to his work on your behalf. You become nearsighted and so that you've now forgotten That you have been cleansed from your former sins. That's the problem. And I want that to come as a comfort to us as well. Because when you really start digging in and you start saying, "I, I want to actually pursue why it is that I care so much about what other people think about me. Or I actually want to dig in and find out why I can't get excited and be happy for anybody else in my life. And you're entering into a real struggle and one in which you're not going to feel this uh, and experience 100 percent success. And there's a tendency to think in those moments when you stumble and you fall again after, after being so committed to fighting this, that you start wondering, does God's grace extend to this failure? Is this a sin for which I can still be forgiven, even as I continue to struggle? where the shame and the guilt becomes overwhelming to us, what Peter would say to you in the midst of this is you need to look back to what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Look to that cleansing. Don't forget that as you continue to fight against this sin. Know that Jesus' death on your behalf is sufficient for all of your sins, past, present, and future. And let that then be the fuel of how you would begin pursuing him. And so that's what his point is. You need to understand who you are in Jesus in order to then begin pursuing who you are in Jesus. You've been given this identity of son of God, forgiven of your sins. Now live into that reality. That's huge for us to understand. This is your identity, and now let your behavior flow from that identity. One one way to illustrate this, is thinking about what it means to be an American. Most of you, hopefully all of us, uh, are going to pay taxes this week, right? You have until Wednesday to do that, if you haven't done already. Now, why would we do that? We do that because that's part of what it means to be an American, right? I was summoned for jury duty in two weeks. Why would I do that? Because I want to? No. But because that's what it means to be an American. And you might be thinking, well, those are... Horrible examples of like why it, what it means to be an American. Those aren't the parts I'm excited about. Here's a more positive example. Think back to, to 9-11 and what occurred in the United States after 9-11. Where, although this was temporary, there was this standing together of, of American citizens for freedom. And, and even across the political spectrum, we overcame these differences for a time in order to, to, to stand united For what we all understand it means to be an American. Now why did that happen? It wasn't because you were instructed on how to be an American in that moment. It was because you know that that is your identity if that's your citizenship. And your behavior flows from that. Now what Peter's saying is much more profound and much deeper than that. But he is saying that you have the identity now of a son or daughter of the living God. You've been set free from the power of sin. Now live into that identity. Become who God is making you to be in Jesus by His grace. And so that's why He can tell us to pursue this change, to pursue this life. And if you notice, verse 7, it results in love of others. And then it results in this assurance and encouragement. So that you can be, it can become apparent in your life that yes, I belong to Jesus. And this fruit is showing forth and bears witness to it. So he calls us here to know what God's given to us. He calls us then to pursue what God has given to us in Jesus. Lastly, thirdly, we change by remembering what God has given to us in Jesus. Now there are a lot of uh, parts of this entire letter that look really similar to the surrounding Greco-Roman culture. And this part in particular, verses 12 through 15, really looks similar to a lot of what you'd see in the ancient world. And and it takes the form of what's called a, a testament letter. So here's what this form of, of a letter does. It would be written by somebody who is approaching death, some sort of leader, and he would gather to himself his followers. And what he would do is remind his followers of what he had taught. And he would call them then to, to remember that teaching and continue to pursue that teaching and tell them how to live and tell, him, tell them what's coming after he dies. If you look in verses 12 through 15, that's exactly what we have from Peter here. And what he wants to do is, is to remind us of everything that he's taught and written. But most commentators say specifically he wants us to remember verses 3 through 11. This is the meat of this letter and he wants us to be reminded of all that he's just said. Why would he do that? He would do that because our hearts are prone to wander and our hearts are prone to forget. Jerry prayed it earlier. We sing this in the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. What Paul Tripp calls this is identity amnesia. He says that human beings are always assigning to themselves some kind of identity. There are only two places to look. Either you will be getting your identity vertically from who you are in Christ, or you will be shopping for it horizontally in the situations, experiences, and relationships of your daily life. We are prone to forget. So the question for you to consider this morning as you're thinking about that particular sin that you're battling is have you forgotten who you are in Jesus? Have you forgotten all that He has done for you, all that He's committed to doing in you? Peter says, be reminded of the grace Of the gospel. And be refreshed in that. Final point of application. How do we do this? How do we remember? If our hearts are prone to wander and forget. How do we push back against that? Of course there are all sorts of things we can say about this. I want to just give us one. And it's this. We remember by being vitally connected. To a community of Christians. We remember by being a part. Of Jesus' church by being a part of his body. We are, in many senses, a community of memory. Where what we have to do every week, not just because God says it's good for you to get together, what we have to do every week is come together and remind one another of the truth of the gospel. Because if we don't have that, we will forget. It's a guarantee. And I used to see this all the time On the campus at Purdue when we were doing RUF, you would have these Christians come from their churches, their youth groups in high school come to campus and not connect anywhere with any campus ministry or church. And of course, you'd see them at the end of first semester and they were floundering. They they, they had all sorts of questions. They were doubting in significant ways and their lives weren't what they had hoped to be. That's because Jesus didn't intend for you to live the Christian life alone. He has made you to be in this community where we remind one another of the truth of the gospel. And they're they're actually, in the Alzheimer's community, these groups that are called memory cafes. What they do is they get together and they remind one another of, of these basic stories about who they are. And they enjoy being together in that context, reminding one another as they fight against forgetting it. You must have other people in your life to remind you of these things. You are not sufficient to do it on your own. So we need one another. Okay, so back to the office and Andrew Bernard. Um, there, there really is, I think, a huge part of us that would love a simple solution like a six-week course, right? Go for six weeks and this issue that you've been struggling with for 30 years is going to be gone, And we actually think that would be really great for us. But listen to this, though. If that were the best way for us to be transformed and changed, you can be certain that that's how God would have created us, and that's what He would have done. It's not what He's done. What He's done is given us something far, far better, more beautiful, more lasting, and more real. What He has given to us is His Son, and it's in the context of a relationship with Jesus, in which we have then everything that we need for life and godliness. It is that Jesus who has delivered us from sin, who has cleansed us from these former sins, and has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. So you now, if you have put your faith in Jesus, have everything you need in Him. Know Him, remember Him. Pursue him. That's what Peter would have us do. That is the path to change. We pray for us. Father, we're grateful for your love, your patience, your kindness towards us, even as we struggle with the remaining presence of sin in us. We thank you, Lord, that you, by your spirit, through our relationship with Jesus, have given us everything. And we pray, Lord, that we would continue to flee to you, that you would provide for us. We thank you for your love and your grace, and we pray through Christ. Amen.